This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Tuesday the 24th of November. So Norman, one of the questions that we've gotten a lot from people about over the course of this pandemic so far is whether it's seasonal. And on one hand, yes, the Melbourne second wave happened in our winter, but it's hard to really tease out what's the difference between seasonality and a new virus in a globe of susceptible people. But in the States, which is going into its winter, and also in in other parts of the Northern Hemisphere, we're seeing a really straight upwards curve, a really scary looking curve. So what do we know about the seasonality or otherwise of coronavirus? Well, during the first wave, it was said that there was so much coronavirus around that it swamped the effects of seasonality, although most people expected this to be a winter virus, a seasonal virus, but they couldn't guarantee it and you just weren't necessarily seeing the effects of it. On this week's Health Report podcast, I've been talking to Chris Murray, Professor Chris Murray, who's at the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation in Seattle. And they've been doing global modelling now on the COVID-19 pandemic, which has turned out to be pretty accurate. So for the world, for different countries and for the United States. And they say that when they look at the big data, they do find a seasonal effect and they believe it's actually quite strong. And the fascinating thing is that they predict that the virus in the United States will start to peak. Deaths from the coronavirus will peak round about Inauguration Day and tail off towards the end of January into February. So without any vaccine, you will see a natural peaking and tailing off. It won't go down to zero, but it will start to ebb away. So you know, in the if Joe Biden was like Trump, he would take full credit on day two of his presidency for turning around the pandemic, but it will be natural. What's the driver for it to peak then? Is it that people are interacting with a certain number of people and you just kind of run out of contacts? How does, how does that peak start to come down again? No, it's obviously a little bit of an effect of natural immunity in that, but even by January, you're still not going to see the majority of Americans infected with the COVID-19 virus. So a little bit of an effect, because what they say is that even 20% coverage of immunity um, associated with some social distancing could see a tailing off. No, I I think they think it's simply how the virus responds to temperature. Um, And although it's um, still in the middle of winter and pretty cold, There are plenty of viruses that have most of their effect in autumn and early winter and seem to die away in midwinter. In fact, influenza is a bit like that, where influenza in Australia tends to hit more in autumn than in winter, in the depths of winter. Not that we have much depths of winter. So, yep, they think it's seasonal and it might might start turning off. And then if if we're lucky with the vaccine and the vaccine does prevent transmission, that'll have an even more dramatic effect as the year goes through. Yeah, I suppose there were some early, now you mention it, there are some studies that came out earlier in the year saying that the virus survived longer at lower temperatures and in lower humidity. So maybe that's the seasonality thing there. But what does it mean for us in Australia coming into next year's winter if a vaccine isn't widely available by that time? Well, if we've kept our international borders secure and we haven't had too many outbreaks and we're still 
socially distancing to some extent when we need to and we're able to control, then maybe not very much because there won't be very much virus around. But if there's a significant, say, outbreak from hotel quarantine, if we're still doing it at that point, then you could see uh, a major takeoff. And Victoria, Tasmania, parts of South Australia would be vulnerable to that. So I'm trying to cast my mind back because we have talked about seasonality on Coronacast before and I feel like we said that it wasn't seasonal. So were we wrong or is this just more information? I think you feel the wrong thing to you. My memory <laughs> is very different. I remember that people were saying there probably was a seasonal effect but you couldn't see it in all the noise of the, and strength of the pandemic. The pandemic was so strong, it was masking a seasonal effect underneath. And then what they thought was, as the pandemic turned into an epidemic and the virus became endemic, in other words, steady in the community and keeping on recurring, then you would see the effect of seasonality, which might mean then you'd see a surge um, as the weather got colder. I like that version of of our memory, yes. Do you? Yeah, but no doubt, um, Coronacast listeners who've got a much better memory than either you or me will fix us up. Absolutely. And speaking of other research-related things that we've talked about before and now we now have more information about, uh, antibodies aren't the only thing in our immune system and there's some new research out of Monash University that shows that perhaps immunity to the coronavirus is longer lasting than we feared. Yes. So a little bit of physiology here. There are two elements to attacking, well, actually there's three elements to attacking a virus, but let's just talk of two of them for the moment. The first wave is really the antibody. Those are chemicals in the bloodstream that attach to the spikes of the coronavirus and stop it docking with tissues in our body and hopefully kill the virus as well. And they're called neutralising antibodies. Now, they don't come out of nowhere. They're produced by white blood cells. The white blood cells that produce antibodies are called B cells. And some B cells have memory for the antibodies they need to produce. It's a waste of energy then producing antibodies all the time to a virus that they're not seeing. But if a virus enters the body, they they wake up and they say, oh, hello, I've seen this one before, and they start manufacturing antibodies. And this study identified, found a way through using monoclonal antibodies to actually attach themselves to these B cells and identify them. They took 25 people in March who had coronavirus and followed them through to September looking at these B memory cells. And what they showed was that they maintained themselves. In other words, you could still find B memory cells at the end of eight months. So that suggests that the body retained the memory and the ability to produce antibodies to the coronavirus, to SARS-CoV-2. This is not a peer-reviewed study, hasn't been published in a major journal yet, but it is an interesting finding and a very sophisticated study. And great news for people who've had coronavirus, but also for the quest for a vaccine. That's absolutely right. So let's take some questions. We've got Tom asking, in theory, Norman, if the world just stood still for two weeks, didn't go out, stayed at home, played games on our phones and listened to podcasts, would coronavirus die altogether? Well, you'd have to listen to the coronacast and then it might, but sadly, probably not. And the reason is that there are people around who shed virus for quite a long time. So two weeks gets you two cycles of the virus, but there will be people who shed virus beyond that. And therefore, two weeks probably isn't enough. But month, six weeks, maybe. In fact, there was a case, a positive case in South Australia yesterday that was thought to have been a fairly long incubation period. Yeah, eight to 10 days, I think, is what they said. Maybe eight days, um, which sort of, 
gives the lie to the fact that this is a special virus, perhaps with short incubation cycles. It's probably just a normal virus. It may be a, a variant that's coming, it's almost certainly a variant that's coming from overseas, but it, it's showing the, the, the natural variation in incubation period. David's asking, what about the University of Queensland vaccine? Is it still being tested? And if so, when would it be available? Good question. My information on the the UQ vaccine is that it's completed phase one trials, which are the safety trials, yet to be published and yet to be released. And CSL is manufacturing the vaccine for phase two, phase three trials, which are expected to be started to start soon in parts of the world where there's still a lot of coronavirus around. So they hope to have an answer for that in, uh, I think, the first quarter, end of the first quarter of next year is what I understand to be the case. And then it would still have to go through the regulatory approvals. Sure. Yeah. So it's about four or five months behind the, the current vaccines that are at the front line. So here's a question from someone who's calling themselves Scoose, uh, asking about the New South Wales app and the requirement to use a QR code to sign into venues. Uh, Scoose says, I don't have a smartphone. I have no intention of getting one. I simply can't afford one. Will I be turned away from eating venues because I can't complete a QR code requirement? Being able to sign in with an old-fashioned pen and paper was wonderful. Now I'm being discriminated against. So yes, New South Wales, it is mandatory to have a QR code to sign in. But if you don't have it, then the venue is obliged to have an electronic means of doing so. So there's, they would have to do it, if you like, manually into a computer or a phone there so that there's an electronic record of you having entered the, the restaurant or the bar. Um, so in other words, it's not signing a piece of paper. And the idea here is that if there's a problem at that venue, then contact tracers can access an electronic database, both the QR code and the electronic database that the restaurant has entered your details into, rather than trying to chase pieces of paper which can get lost. So you, you don't have to have a smartphone, but the venue does have to have an electronic means of doing so. So these sorts of QR codes are really predicated on the idea of contact tracing. If someone has COVID, then you trace their contacts. But in the UK, they've just announced that self-isolation is no longer required for people who've had contact with a COVID-19 case. What is that going to do to their numbers? Make them worse. You've got to go to lockdown. You've got to go to social distancing. You've got to identify close contacts and you've got to isolate them and test them and uh, and make sure that these people are not passing it on. And if you don't do that, you're not doing the contact tracing properly, according to the book. And the book actually matters because the book is right. Um, so they're going to make it worse. And if they relax lockdown restrictions at Christmas, they're going to get the a super spreading event to end all super spreading events um, because there's nothing like Christmas for bringing people together, catching the virus and spreading it on, one would imagine. Well, that's all we've got time for on Coronacast today. If you've got a question or a comment, keep them coming in. Go to abc.net.au slash coronacast. Click on Ask a Question and mention Coronacast on the way through so we can pick it up more easily. And we'll see you tomorrow. And don't forget to check out the Health Report podcast for that interview with Chris Murray. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> 